The sermon for today is from uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. We'll read the entire chapter. This is the word of our Lord. Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard of the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God, and he set a guard as protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is falling. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop this work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work. Half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. This month, uh, 74 years ago, the Allied troops, if y'all know your World War II history, the Allied troops crossed the Rhine River. The Rhine River was the border between France and Germany. And what had happened is um, Hitler, through the, 
the Nazi Germany had begun to take over all of Europe and a group of soldiers, a group of nations from US, Britain, Russia had begun to assault um, Germany in an attempt to rescue basically the whole of Europe. You rewind a little bit and in uh, June, the previous year, the Allied troops had landed on the beaches of Normandy. That's the very edge of France. And so you can see the timeline. They're landing on the beach and they're making progress through France towards Germany. And as they land on the beach, they face huge amounts of resistance. And then you fast forward a few months and you get into December and January and you guys might have heard of the Battle of the Bulge. They make their way sort of across the west of France and they end up into another huge fight with Germany across the Rhine, and then after they get into the Rhine, they, st- they steadily start to make progress towards Berlin. And all along the way, what's happening is as the Allied troops are on the mission of rescuing Europe, they're steadily taking new ground. And at every step that they take new ground, they face new resistance. The reason that illustration is important for us this morning is because the scriptures describe the church as living in a war. We sit here today really comfy. We sit here wearing our our Sunday best. Uh, But the reality is, is through the corridors of history, the church has been resisted and the church has faithfully taken new ground. But the reason it's taking new ground is because Christ, Jesus, has come to rescue his people. And as he does, he's the one who's advancing. But again, at every single step, it faces new resistance. So what we're going to look at this morning, the question we're going to answer is, what happens when the kingdom of Christ moves forward? What happens when the kingdom of Christ starts taking new ground? The text we're going to be using, Daniel just led us through, is Nehemiah 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can turn to your, uh, the sermon outline that's in your handout. It's included at the top. But the first thing I want us to, to notice uh, coming out of Nehemiah 4 is um, what is actually happening? What is Nehemiah actually doing? It, it begs the question, um, why all the ruckus about a wall. See, the thing is, is that um, already if you, if you flip back to Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah in the original scriptures are one book, they're one story, there's, there's one sort of movement to reestablish Israel. And what's happening in that is um, as they go to rebuild the temple, they face resistance. And so Nehemiah shows up and does this. He decides to lead them in rebuilding the wall because what the wall does is it secures for them the right to be a city. And them securing their right to be a city allows them to cultivate a culture of worship. And a culture of worship allows them to be a people. So what I want you to see in that is what Nehemiah is doing is he's, by building the wall, it's not just a physical structure, he's actually reestablishing for the people the right to exist as a people. Which turns us to the second part of point one. Why does that fire Sambalat up? We open up chapter four with, now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. The text, if you read it in the Hebrew, sounds like, uh, y'all ever met an angry dog that you get backed in a corner? Sambalat was threatened. He was When it said that he went from angry to greatly enraged, it's a guy who had lost control of the situation or feared that he had lost control of the situation. But you ask the question, why? Well, Samaria, if you all know the the geography a little bit or if you know the story, Samaria is, so Jerusalem is, show it to you this way, 
Jerusalem's here. Samaria is like right on the edge of Judah and Jerusalem. It's literally in the province of Persia in this story. It's literally the very next region or the very next governorship. See, when Nehemiah shows up as a new governor to constitute a new people, he is taking ground that previously belonged to Sambalat. So on one hand, Sambalat literally controlled Judah before then. But then the next thing that happens is not only does he take Judah from Sambalat, but Sambalat is wondering whether that he's actually going to be assaulted by Nehemiah eventually. What I want you to see in the text is the reason that Sambalat is so enraged is because Judah, and specifically Nehemiah, is a threat to Sambalat. So what does Sambalat do? If you flip over to, uh, to verses 2, I love this. His tactics for resistance. He, uh, he goes and he gets the governor. If y'all read it, it says Tobiah is with him. Tobiah is the governor of the region that's right on the other side. So there's Samaria, Judah, this guy over here. He goes and gets Tobiah. Then Sambalat gets his entire army. And then he parades the army down to Jerusalem. And standing in front of Jerusalem, he lobs these questions out loud. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? See, what's interesting about uh, Sambalat's resistance or Sambalat's, the, the accusations and the, the lies that he lobs at them is they're actually kind of true. If you think about prior to Nehemiah showing up for 70 years, the Jews had been an oppressed people. For 70 years, the walls had laid on the ground. For 70 years, the stones that they were using to build the wall had been rubbish. See, uh, Sambalat shows up and he starts to tell them or remind them of things that used to be true. He reminds them of like, for the last several generations, I've had my way with you all. Here's my army. For the last several generations, you failed to reestablish the wall. And here's my army. For the last several generations, you haven't had the resources to be your own people. And here's the army that reminds you of it. But what's changed? Why all of a sudden is Sambalat, who was more than comfortable to have the Jews just chill, just be, just be scattered around Judah? Why is he so fired up that he would go get the other governor, go get his army and parade down to Jerusalem? There's a new governor in town. See, prior to Nehemiah showing up, the people, the remnant that was in Judah were feeble. Prior to Nehemiah showing up, the wall was on the ground. Prior to Nehemiah showing up, it was rubbish. See, what threatened Sambalat wasn't the people, it was Nehemiah. A new governor had shown up, one who had authority. And if you all remember the early part of the story, he had letters directly from the emperor to come and have authority in this location. See, Sambalat didn't have His authority had already been taken, and what threatened him was the actual presence of Nehemiah. But the other thing is, it's the presence of Nehemiah that made these people no longer a feeble set of Jews. That's why I wanted to point this out to you guys as things that used to be true. 
Right before Nehemiah shows up, these are true. But on this side of Nehemiah being in this story, they're no longer true. The other thing I want you to see is, um, you know, as you get through verses three, four, five, they're lobbying all these accusations. They're reminding them of their 70 years worth of weakness and failure. And then you get to verse six and it says, so we built the wall. There's no response. There's Nehemiah's intercession, but there's no response. They just keep going. They just keep building the wall. And then it says, but in verse seven, but when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard, that, that is, it went from just the guy that was right north of Judah to him and the guy next to him to all of the surrounding regions were now like, oh no, Jerusalem is fixing to have a wall again. The whole entire area starts to get fired up. The whole entire area starts to amass their armies. The whole entire area starts to come down to Jerusalem to see if they can oppose and stop the wall being built. You wonder why. Why do they want the wall stopped? Well, we would have read through it earlier, but back when... um, Back when Ezra was leading them through the rebuilding of the temple and the reestablishment of the law, uh, all these surrounding governors had begun to send letters back to the king of Persia, reminding them, this is a rebellious city. Prior to you, there's no one who's ever been able to conquer this city. And the last couple of people who tried to conquer this city got kicked out, got overthrown, that, that Jerusalem is a threat to your power. See, all four of these governors, they started to get the same message that Sambalat got. They were like, oh no, if Nehemiah shows up and Nehemiah manages to establish the wall, he'll establish the people and we will lose our control of the region. And it almost works. You get down to... Um, Verse 10, and it says, in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they won't know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And then their family starts showing up. 10 times their family shows up and say, y'all need to knock it off. You're getting way too serious. You need to just come home and stop. It almost works. It almost works because what Sambalat has been lobbying at the Jews is stuff that has historically been true. It used to be true. But why don't they stop? The only reason they don't stop is this. The faithfulness of Nehemiah's ministry among them. Do y'all see that in the text? When they're not a people... He gives them a mission and makes them a people. When they get harassed, he tells them to ignore them. When they get tired and afraid and an army starts marching, Nehemiah puts them into clans. Nehemiah reminds them to not be afraid. Listen to to the words that he says in verse 14. He says, do not be afraid of them. Listen, this is the the governor who had authority from the king saying these guys don't have authority anymore. But then he doesn't point back to the Persian king. He says, remember the Lord who's great and awesome 
and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. We all return to the wall, each to his work. Now see, as they were about to lose heart, not only was it Nehemiah who had made them a people in the first place, but when they dealt with the resistance that began to happen as they moved forward, it was also Nehemiah who wed them to the mission. It was Nehemiah who sustained them. It was Nehemiah who pushed back on the enemy that had come to oppose them. At this point, you guys are like, what in the world are you talking about? What I want you to get from this first point is this. If you read Nehemiah chapter four and you miss that this story is about Nehemiah, that it's not about Sambalat, that it's not about the Jews, that it's not even about the faithfulness of fighting back and building the wall and all of those things that you... If you miss that this is about Nehemiah showing up as a new governor, you will have missed the text. Chapter four is about Nehemiah. But why does that apply to the church? Here's why. Uh, We have this little game in our house. Caleb is getting old enough. Y'all know Caleb. He's my five-year-old son. He has, uh, he's really gotten into drawing recently. And there's these books that have uh, pictures on them. And there's a smattering of pictures on the top. And then it coaches them through how to draw those pictures. And we've developed this little game that Caleb will start drawing a picture. And what I'll do is I'll come over and I'll look at the picture he's drawing. And I'll try to pick out what's the, what's the object that it's pointing to. But Caleb is drawing this thing like a five-year-old does. It's not exactly perfect. It's a little bit shadowy. It's a little bit rickety. But what he's drawing is pointing to another thing that's super clear. See, the story of Nehemiah, and the reason you got to get that Nehemiah 4 is about Nehemiah is this. The story of Nehemiah points to the story of Jesus Christ. This, Keith said it last week, but this is not a moral lesson. This is not a book about leadership principles. It's not a book about launching a startup. It's not any of the things that you would want to get out of this. It's fine. You can get lessons from it, learn from it, but you will have missed the point if you don't get that the book of Nehemiah is pointing you to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ. So from this point on, we're going to start hopping around the Bible a little bit, but I wanted to give you the download of what is happening with Nehemiah so that you have the illustration that points us to what Jesus is doing in his church. So flip with me over to Luke 4. So after, uh, after the, so in the, in the Hebrew Bible, um, this story along with Chronicles would have been like the very end of the story. And then there would have been a gap of about four or 500 years. And then all of a sudden, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John on the timeline, the story hits. And you get to Luke chapter four. Luke one through three tells the story of Jesus growing up and being born. And then Luke four starts his ministry. And it says in verse 18 that he walked one day into a synagogue And he took out the scroll of Isaiah, and this is from Isaiah 63. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year 
of the Lord's favor. See, when Jesus shows up, he shows up with the papers, just like Nehemiah had from Artaxerxes, the king in Persia, except the papers he has is the scroll of Isaiah, and it's coming from the king of heaven. See, he shows up and he walks into a synagogue and he says, there's a new governor in town. There's a new authority in town. And then you flip over to Matthew 16. And as Jesus shows up as a new authority, new governor, what does he announce that he's here to do? Turn to verse 13, Matthew 16, 13. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, the one my papers came from who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus shows up and says, he's not just a random prophet. He's the governor sent from the king of heaven, and he's not showing up just to build a new wall. He's showing up to build his church. If you're, uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with archaeology at all, um, as they were building the wall uh, around Jerusalem, they would, have laid, they would have laid beams on the bottom, and they would have laid it on rock. And then from the rock, they would have started to build on top of it these stones. So there's a foundation to the wall. If you all have ever built even just a retaining wall in your house, you know there's something that it's built on. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and he says... The rock I'm going to build it on is this. It's the profession of my person. We have some debate about uh, historically about how do, we, how do we take what Jesus is saying there. But Peter is an, about to be an apostle. And he had just announced for the first time in human history from someone else that Jesus is the son of the living God, the Christ. And Jesus looks at him and says, that's it. That's the foundation of my church. That as Jesus shows up, what Jesus is doing is he is building his church on the, on the rest and the trust in who he is. So what does that mean for us today? It, it's a little bit awkward to even be talking about this text as a church planter. Because it's real easy to think, man, building the church is about like new buildings and going to new towns and going to new cities. And I guess in some way it's about that. Downstream, eventually, it's about that. But when the rock is the rest and the trust that you have in the person of Christ, then when Jesus is showing up and taking new ground, the place he's taking new ground is your heart. I know that sounds sentimental, but the place he is taking new ground is in your will. And the place that he's taking new ground is in your relationships. The place he's taking new ground is your community. And eventually, 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 the place he's taking new ground is your city. But when Jesus shows up, he says, I have come to proclaim liberty to the captives. What does it mean for us to trust Christ? 
What does it mean for us to take rest in his person, in who he is? What it means is that when he shows up, the whole entire uh, uh, evidence of your life, the whole evidence of the culture around you has been this. You need to trust yourself. You need to stand on your own merits. You need to look out for yourself. And when Jesus shows up and he says, that's slavery, that's oppression, that has bound my people. And what he says is, I'm inviting you to trust in me, to come stand on my merits. And then you get to the resistance. So every single time that you begin uh, to trust Christ, maybe it's for the first time you've heard the gospel and for the first time you've realized, I'm not the one who deals with my sin, but Jesus is. And you go, I hear that. Maybe I'll trust that. What happens? Everything inside you goes, that can't be right. Everything inside you goes, no, no, my whole life has taught me I need to stand on my own merits. And then Jesus goes, no, no, you stand on my merits. And then maybe it's later, you, you decide to start to trust him by the way that you love your neighbor. And you walk across the street and maybe you uh, help them with a tree that's chopped down or you choose to be kind to them or you choose to just be hospitable to them. Maybe you open up your home for a community group and then what happens? You start to go, this costs too much. There's consequences. This isn't what the world does. Maybe you, maybe you start to move into a new part of a city to do new work and you start to be reminded of the cost of doing it. You start to be reminded of the, the, the sacrifice that goes into it, and you go, it's too hard. I'm tired. So what I want you to get this morning is, as Jesus takes new ground in your life, as Jesus takes new ground in your relationships, as you choose to love one another, as you choose to rest in him, resistance to that is not just weird, it's normal. Resistance to that isn't just uh, happenstance, it's expected. And the reason is because when Jesus shows up, it's war. But the difference is, we were talking about uh, World War II and the way that humans prosecute war. The way humans prosecute war, they have one objective. Prior to war, it's politics. We're hoping to work things out. But by the time it comes to fighting, the only objective is to take living things and make them dead. When Jesus shows up, his war's on death. And what Jesus is there to do is to take dead things and make them alive. And so every single time that he starts to take ground, every single time that he starts to take you from standing on your own merits to dealing with one another in selfishness to dealing with, with one another in lack of forgiveness, your flesh and the world and the devil, for that matter, starts to resist it. And you know what happens? You get tired. You get tired. 
Has anybody in here ever dealt with uh, like a, a child that's between zero and three years old? If you wonder whether Genesis 3 is true or not, uh, you just have to have a baby. And dealing with a sinner as a sinner is tiring. It wears you out. But what's our hope? Do you know why, just before we get on to that, do do you know why the flesh, the world, and the devil hate you? Why you're resisted? Why your trust in Christ and your, your rest in him in both your own internal life and the way you relate to one another, do you know why it's resisted? Because he's a threat. Life is a threat to death. And the king of heaven has come as our governor to kick out death and to build his church. The only reason you're resisted is not because there's something fancy among you. It's because Jesus is among you. And you know what the resistance sounds like? You're feeble. The the task is too big. And you know, the junk you're building with is rubbish anyways. And look at the army that's behind me. See, that the junk that your flesh and the world and the devil throws at you is stuff that used to be true. It's actually not that far away from having been true, but it is no longer true. What it means is, you know, outside of Christ, you are feeble. Outside of Christ, I don't have the resources to love my bride well and care for my kids well. Outside of Christ, I don't have the resources to actually love my neighbor well. Outside of Christ, I don't have the resources to deal with my own sin and stand before God. But you know what? In Christ, that's no longer true. So every time you begin to respond every time you begin um, to trust him. And that, that sounds like I acknowledge my sin, which we use the loaded word of confession, but I, I, I just, I face into the reality that I'm not perfect. And then every time that I realize that the standard of God is perfection and Christ invites me to have his perfection instead of my own, my flesh goes, yeah, yeah, but you're not perfect. And then Jesus goes, yeah, but you have my perfection. And then the world goes, yeah, but you're not perfect. Y'all get that, right? It is literally, you take the beach in Normandy and it's a fight. You get to the Battle of the Bulge and it's a fight. You get to the Rhine River and it's a fight. You get to Berlin and it's a fight. You get to your heart and it's a fight. You get to your marriage and it's a fight. You get into your city and it is a fight. But the fight is this, the fight is a fight for rest. The fight is a fight for trust. The fight is this, death hates life. And so you are fighting. What is resisting you is not life, but death. And what you're being invited into is life. I've taken a long time this morning just to set you all up. And I hope that's okay with you. Because what I wanted to really get to this morning is point three. 
if I have to convince you uh, that following Jesus is hard, just come talk to me after the service. But if you are here this morning and you're already sure that following Jesus is hard, then it begs the question, what do we do about that? If following Jesus makes you tired, what do you do about that? If following Jesus makes you afraid, what do you do about that? If your family shows up 10 times and says, knock it off, what do you do about that? If the army of the world around you shows up and says, knock it off, what do you do about that? Here's the thing. You don't do anything about that. Jesus does. What I want to point you to this morning is looking at Nehemiah's ministry to the Jews as they were losing heart. What is Christ's ministry among us today as he takes new ground? Flip over to verse 14. This is in Nehemiah 4, verse 14. And he says, do not be afraid of them. You know, uh, in the Gospel of John, which we just went through last year, but in the Gospel of John, you get to John 17 and there's the high priestly prayer. That's Jesus talking to the Father. Then you get to 18 through 21 and that's all the like, he gets betrayed and crucified and, and then risen. Do you know the very, very, very last words that Jesus says to the disciples while they're all together comes from John 16, 33. Listen to these amazing, incredible words. I've said these things. This is literally the last time he is speaking to them. I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace. In the world, you'll have tribulation. Take heart. I've overcome the world. What Jesus is saying is, Now that I'm here, now that I'm about to do my work, it's gonna feel like things are getting sideways. And you know what? As you follow me, it is going to feel like things are going sideways. But listen up, there's a new governor in town. You don't belong to them anymore. The same way that Nehemiah stood in front of the Jews and said, you don't belong to Sambalad anymore. There's no reason to be afraid of him that you don't belong to the flesh anymore. You don't belong to the world anymore. You don't belong to the devil and you do not belong to death anymore. That as you face the resistance and the tiredness of following him, the first thing Jesus says is don't be afraid. You don't belong to who you used to belong to anymore. And then Nehemiah goes on further to give them a good handle on why they should not be afraid. And just see what he says. He says, remember the Lord who is great and terrible. Remember Yahweh. We just got done preaching through uh, 1 Corinthians. And if you remember 1 Corinthians 15, after Paul goes through the long slog of what it means to follow Christ, do you remember what he said? He said, now I remind you of this, brothers, the gospel that I proclaimed to you at first that the thing that causes you to not be afraid is a reminder of the gospel. So here it is. In the work of Christ, he took your sin. Let me clarify that for you. Every single stupid, bad decision you have made, 
every single thing you regret, every single thing that the liar shows up and reminds you of, that you're feeble, that it's rubbish, that you're built, all of that stuff, Christ literally took from you. It's not just that he bore the punishment for your sin. He actually took your sin from you. He depossessed you of your sin. And then after he took your sin away from you, you're standing there naked, holding nothing. And you know what Jesus does? See, the reason our Christ came and lived a perfect life as a human was so that he would be in possession of human righteousness. He was already in possession of divine righteousness, but he put himself in possession of human righteousness. And you know why? So that he could hand it to you. You don't belong to anybody else any longer because the worst thing you have ever or will ever done has already been taken from you. And the very best thing you could ever do has already been done and given to you. You don't stand on your own merits anymore. You stand on the merits of Christ. So the reason you're not afraid is because you remember your Lord. The reason you're not afraid is because you remember the person of Christ and the work of Christ among you. And then he goes on further to say, remember your brothers, fight for them. Makes this little riff. He says, fight for your brothers and your sons, your daughters and your wives, your homes. You know, every single time that you face the choice to trust Christ, to rest in him, you're not just doing it for yourself. I mean, you are. That is, that is your own salvation being worked out. It's your own peace, your own rest being worked out. But every single time that you choose to trust and rest in Christ, you're building new patterns of relationship around you. Every single time that you rest in the gospel, you're building a new community. Remember, Jesus said, I'm building my church. As you guys do that for generations, do you know what happens? You're building an entire new community that your sons and their sons grow up in. Somebody emailed me the other day and said, uh, what, or it, I had one conversation on the phone, one over email, and they said like, what is on your brain as you're thinking about planting a church? I said this, I said, probably the weightiest thing is that every single day, the way we relate to each other, the decisions we make are shaping the church that my grandsons are gonna grow up in. The first reason that you stay in the pocket, the first reason you cling to Jesus is this. You don't belong to somebody else. And the evidence of that is what your Lord has already done. The second reason is this. You're not fighting for just yourself. You're fighting for the generations that every single day when you choose to trust Christ and rest in him, you are developing a culture that is counter to the world. The third thing that Christ does among us is right as, um, this is awesome. And I'm sorry if I'm going long, I'm just going. Uh, when Nehemiah first basically, it's not recorded, but he basically tells them to ignore them. Right on the heels of that, Nehemiah intercedes for the people. Did y'all pick that up? in the text, there's this weird pivot into he just starts praying. And you're like, what is happening? And the text is pointing to the fact that today, sitting on the throne of heaven, 
Christ, your governor, is interceding for you. That there's nothing happening that has missed his gaze or that he's not engaged in. But the other thing he does is when the opposition heats up, like so after he tells him to to ignore them is when the army comes down and is like, no, seriously, we're going to come inside the city and kill y'all. Then when you start following Jesus and things start getting serious, like confession and repentance has a consequence in your relationships. And trusting Christ fractures potentially a relationship in your family. Or loving your neighbor has a consequence for your own selfishness. Do you know what Nehemiah, what he reminds them of? He says, rally to me. When the fight comes, you're going to hear the trumpeter who's right next to me and rally there because that's where our God is going to fight for us. And you know what Jesus says? He shows up and he says, when the fight comes, you don't take it on on your own two feet. You rally to me. Rally to Christ. So what does that mean this morning? Jen and I recently went through a really amazing training about how do you care for one another out of the gospel, out of the resources of the gospel. And they walked us through every time that you, uh, that your partner or someone you're in a relationship with says, man, I like, I'm really nervous that I blew it. And you go, yeah, yeah, I'm sure it wasn't that bad. I'm sure they didn't take it that way. I'm sure it's not such a big deal that we're putting fig leaves on one another. We're not actually doing anything of substance that can care for one another. But when we do that and, they come, and, and your partner comes to you and you remind them of, you know what? You probably did do that. You probably did offend that person. And you know what? Christ loves you. And Christ loves that person. And he has already taken away your sin and he's already put you in possession of his righteousness and divine justice has guaranteed that your good will be done. That even though you may have hurt and offended the person across from you, it's gonna work out for your good. That redemption is gonna come. What that means here is as Jesus takes new ground, he's taking new ground in your heart. He's taking new ground in your relationships. He's taking new ground in your community. That you need a resource for that fight and that resource is Christ himself. That you guys can't just care for one another out of your own affinity, out of your own resources, but you have to remind one another of the person and work of Christ. And that leads us to the final point. When they were just building the wall originally, they were living in villages outside of the city and they would come in in the morning and start building and they'd go home at night. But then they start getting resistance. And if you called in the text, you know what starts to happen? they start to carry around a spear in one hand and a bucket in the other. And then, I don't know if y'all have ever done this, but it sounds like Nehemiah didn't shower for 52 days. But did you catch that? He's like, we didn't change our clothes. We slept in the city and we had our sword in our hand. That because the reality of what they were doing on one hand was so important and the resistance on the other hand was so real It affected the way they live. You catch that? Apart from the significance of what they were doing or the reality of the resistance, if either of those weren't true, it probably wouldn't have affected their lives. But listen, this morning, y'all are caught in that tension. You are. Christ is building his church and there is one hope in the world. 
and it is the gospel. And the devil hates that. And so you are resisted. And the only resource you have is Christ. But the other resource that Christ gives you is each other. When he says rally to me, he says y'all rally together. So I want to end by reading to you, turn with me to Hebrews 10. Turn to verse 23. Let us hold fast, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. That sounds a whole lot like don't be afraid. Hold fast our confession of hope without wavering for he, not you, he who promised is faithful. Jesus is the one who promised. He is faithful. And let us consider, let us plan, let us think, let us work out, let us develop tactics. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. That word literally means giving to one another courage. You know, when Nehemiah said, don't be afraid, he gave to the Jews courage encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, what I wanted you to hear this morning is this. You don't belong to the world, to the flesh, to the devil, to sin anymore. There's a new governor in town. Jesus has shown up and said he has come to proclaim liberty. And in every single step, he has taken new ground. Every day, he's inviting you to trust him. Every single moment of your relationships, he's inviting you to rest in him. And as he does, those regional governors, the ones that have been in control of your life in the past, hate that and fight back. Your flesh fights back. The world fights back. The devil fights back. And the resource you have is your governor. The resource you have is Christ doing his ministry among you. And what that takes is that takes you remembering the gospel. It takes you reminding one another of the gospel. And it takes you sticking together in the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, you are our salvation. Jesus, you are our governor. We confess that apart from you, we are feeble. Apart from you, the task of righteousness that you call us to is too big. Apart from you, the building of your church is built with rubbish. But in you, Jesus, in your governorship, in your authority, in your lordship over us, in, your, in our belonging to you, you care for us. You have already put us in possession of righteousness. You've already put us in possession of forgiveness. Your Holy Spirit is already working out new community. It's already working out new intimacy, new relationship. And so we pray that you would make us a church who clings to you, that you would make us a church that doesn't get so focused on the enemy around us, but rallies to our governor, that you would make us a church that remembers our Lord who is great and terrible, that you make us a church that sticks together and you make us a church that clings to you. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.